Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krauss. I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show, so let's get right at it. A little bit later on in the show, we'll meet Douglas Smith, author of the Dream Writer Saga. Douglas is following up the award-winning first two books in the series, The Hollow Boys and The Crystal Key, with a third book to round out the successful trilogy. The new book, which is available wherever fine books are sold, is called The Lost Expedition and continues the story of Will Draycott, the 17-year-old superhero who can walk in our dreams, but because of his agoraphobia, never on the streets of his own city. The book has a 5 out of 5 star rating on Goodreads, and in this interview, we'll find out how Douglas came to writing as a second career, how he approached writing a trilogy, and much, much more. First, though, let's meet Nick Broomfield, director of the new documentary The Stones and Brian Jones, now playing in theaters. With candid interviews and never-before-seen footage, he reveals how Brian Jones, the founding member of the Rolling Stones, was left behind in the shadows of history. Broomfield props up the film with first-hand accounts, particularly from former Rolling Stones bassist Bill Wyman, whose enthusiasm for the music and Jones' contributions to it is absolutely infectious. The old stories are bolstered by the addition of new, fresh interviews, but it's the focus on Jones as a brilliant musician and not simply another rock and roll casualty that really elevates the Stones and Brian Jones. The story has its sordid moments, but Broomfield emphasizes the very heart of Jones's being, and that's the music. Nick Broomfield joined me via Zoom from England. Brian, how long have you been with the Rolling Stones? Are you one of the original members? Yes, one of the original members. Uh, what were you doing before you joined? Um, well, just sort of bumming around waiting for something to happen, really. I felt sorry for him for what we did to him. We took this one thing away, which was being in a band. If you had it through all over again, do you think you'd go the same route again as far as, you know, now that you realize the demands that are put on you as a tremendous success? I'd do it hundred times over if I could. I love it. Why do you think it is that Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, and Janis Joplin are celebrated today still? Uh, they all passed away sometime in and around the time that Brian Jones did. But Jones's creativity and his genius, his musical genius, I think, is all but overlooked. Well, I guess that they were more at the forefront, weren't they? They were all uh, stars in their own rights, and they weren't part of a band, really. Um, and I guess uh, because of the unbelievably long life of the Stones and mm -hmm. their sort of reinvention, uh, I think he's been, you know, kind of forgotten, forgotten a bit. Um, even though he was the founder member. Um, and I guess ultimately, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I guess, you know, Janice and the other ones were all, they were the, the, the fronting artists, weren't they? But I think when I see the interviews with Brian Jones, he was a pop star, an uneasy one for sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I mean, I guess, he was the leader of the band until he was unable to write songs. And Andrew Log Oldman decided that, you know, Keith and Mick were going to be like John and Paul. Right. Uh, and that he was going to promote them as the really visible members of the band. And that Brian and 
Charlie and Bill were going to not be doing interviews and stuff. I think it was a deliberate policy. So, you know, Brian was kind of forced into the mm-hmm. shadow, even though he didn't want to be. Do you think that he was essentially um, almost like a helpless child, rejected by his band in some ways, uh, rejected by his parents uh, in very real ways because they never understood his uh, rebelliousness? They wanted them him to get, quote, a proper job, unquote. Do you think that is at the root of the self-destructive behavior that ultimately was his undoing? Yes, I, I don't think he knew how to deal with the rejection of not being the leader of the band mm-hmm. and um, being pushed into the shadows. I think his you know, way of dealing with that was to sort of self-medicate worse and worse and worse until you know, he was really incapable of contributing to the band. I think he, you know, and it didn't take very long, really. It was a very quick downward spiral. Mm-hmm. I think he just, um, there was a lot of self-loathing, I think, with him, and which you can see sometimes in the way he treated other people. You're listening to Nick Broomfield on The Richard Krause Show. His new documentary, The Stones and Brian Jones, is available to rent or buy across Canada on the Apple TV app and all other VOD platforms. So even though he had a a great talent, um, and he was a founder member and he brought so much to the band in those initial years, with you know the love of R and B, and he was certainly the most experienced musically. Um, I think his own behaviour uh, made it much easier to kind of shove him into the background because he was, you know, very difficult. Well, showing up to a recording sessions either too stoned or drunk to actually play on the records uh, or not showing up at all. The Rolling Stones were just blowing up at this point. And this was the crossroads. This was going to be the make or break. This is the thing that was going to propel them into a new decade and uh, the work they were doing then. And he wasn't contributing. Yeah. I mean, he made it impossible. Mm -hmm. There wasn't any room for sort of, passengers who weren't contributing yeah i think it was like a kind of express train and they they didn't have the time to look after him i think Mm -hmm. you know um key says that you know they just they didn't they didn't really realize what was going on Mm -hmm. with him and he seemed to be the most kind of starstruck too he loved the adoration and all the rest of it i guess he you know he was a very insecure person he didn't have the grounding that the others had. I love the interviews in the film with Bill Wyman, uh, the original bass player from the Rolling Stones. Right. And he is so enthusiastic. It's infectious. Yeah, he is so passionate. You could see mm-hmm. why he did it and how much he loved it. You know, it was it was such a special thing for him. And he suddenly you you feel you're not you're not looking at a sort of 82 year old man mm-hmm. you're looking at somebody who's so full of the love and passion for what they did right from the beginning because I, I i've always seen him bill as quite sort of monosyllabic 
Mm -hmm. so, so it was a wonderful surprise to get to see him like that. I felt sorry for him for what we did to him. We took this one thing away, which was being in a band. He says uh, about this new documentary, The Stones and Brian Jones, that you've just made, uh, he says, this is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but. That's what he told Rolling Stone magazine. So how do you know as a filmmaker and as a documentarian that you have the truth when you're doing a story about a man who was deceptive in life and then mythologized in death? I think, um, well, not going in with a sort of fixed idea of anything so that you are very, you know, impressed and you learn from people like bill wyman mm -hmm. who knew, obviously knew him very well was also a sort of very generous um viewer of brian all his various um antics that he went through i mean there was one bill sort of describes him as somebody who could be uh cruel and the devil on one side and and then you know he could be kind and charming Mm -hmm. And the, the dilemma was, you know, working out which Brian one was going to deal with. You have said uh, that you always wanted to make a film about uh, the 1960s, that you said that was my formative period. So tell me a little bit about uh, finding the archival footage. There's lots of interesting stuff here that I've never seen before. There's a great interview with uh, the mother of Brian Jones's first child. She's still the teenager when she gives the interview. I feel quite sorry for Brian in a way, because the kind of person he is, he can never be happy, could never have true friends. The only friends that he has probably know it, like him because of what he is. I think if he was turned out onto the streets, nobody would want to know Brian. Uh, there's all kinds of great stuff. Tell me a little bit about digging around and finding fresh material for the film. Well, I had three archivists working on it. Mm. Um, Carl Gibbon was the main archivist, and then there was uh, Simon and Orman and uh, somebody in Australia. Um, and they just, you know, before we even started filming... Uh, for about six six months or eight months, just tried to find archive, mm. um, you know, and reached out all over the place. You know, there were people who, you know, th thought they had film in their lock-up garages or in the attic, and half the time, or more than half the time, there's nothing there at all, or it's, you know, so moldy you can't use it. So it was a frustrating business, really, finding footage that hadn't really been seen before that wasn't in the main libraries and that you know individuals had shot on their cameras or yeah so that was a long long process really um and it was useful too because a lot of those people who had that kind of archive had been quite close to the stones and uh had a lot of insight so um yeah, it's just a very, very long process, you know. I mean, normally I take a year on a film, and this one took two and a half years, so in no small part because of finding the great archive. We all dedicated ourselves to the band, and Brian more so than anybody else because it was his band in the beginning, so it meant the world to him more than it did to the rest of us. Brian did everything. He wrote to the music papers, 
We discuss things about the oranges of what is actually the blues and what is R&B. There's all those letters and things. I've got copies of them. When Brian advertised for a band, he chose every single person to come into his band. Well, what I enjoyed about this film uh, so much is that it's not simply another sordid story about someone who died young, uh, leaving a trail of misadventure behind them. There's a bit of that in the film because it's part of the story, but this really is the story of someone whose life centered around music. They didn't really know how to adapt to the rest of the real world, uh, but they understood music and they understood uh, how to, how to create the infectious uh, uh, vibe that you need to make sure that other people can enjoy that music as well. So he's not just a rock and roll casualty in your film. He is someone in my estimation, who's being really celebrated here. And that's not the narrative that we normally get when we talk about Brian Jones. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I think people tended to concentrate on his bad behavior and, mm -hmm. you know, especially when he was kind of out of control and couldn't play properly. But at the beginning, he was the person who taught Keith the interweaving yeah. with the guitar. He was the he was the one who knew how to play the slide guitar incredibly well. Um, and he was the one who understood what key, you know, Muddy Waters and so on were playing in in order to understand how to do their music properly. So he was very gifted and very talented. Um, and I think for the first couple of years, was very much the leader. You know, he he booked the gigs. He uh, decided what numbers they were going to play. Um, and I think that all ended when Andrew Log Oldham joined mm -hmm. as manager and had a very different vision than Brian. He, he had the vision to do more pop. Um, he, you know, felt that they couldn't just keep doing R&B covers. Uh, because a they'd run out, and also, you know, he was looking at the Beatles, and they were so successful doing their own music. And Brian then got sort of pushed to one side, and unfortunately, it's it's his downward trajectory that has generally been uh, written about, and so on. Whereas, you know, I think the enormous contribution he did at the beginning as the founding father of the Stones is 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 rather forgotten. You talk about this in the film, but when you were 14 years old, you actually met him on a train, had a conversation with him. Then six years later, you were at the concert at Hyde Park that uh, happened a couple of weeks after Brian Jones's death. And they announced Nick, Mick Taylor as the new guitar player and sent doves over the crowd and all sorts of things. Tell me what you were thinking on that day if you remember you're 20 years old you're seeing a tribute show to someone who was i think a hero of yours who died very young uh and who you had met it must have had an impact on you well yes i mean i think i was in deep shock that he'd actually died you're listening to nick broomfield on the richard krauss show his film the stones and brian jones is available to rent or buy across canada on the Apple TV app and other VOD platforms. When I'd met him as a kid, he seemed to have absolutely everything going for him. And in terms of our fantasies of the Stones, you imagine them having a wonderful life and 
being surrounded by you know beautiful gorgeous people and having having a you know because i grew up in a fairly sort of sheltered way Mm. in this school in the middle of nowhere so they they were kind of the fantasy and and it was very surprising for him to you know be dead just six years after i'd met him and it just felt well obviously the concert was gigantic i think there were estimates of like between three and five hundred thousand people in Hyde Park um but there was a feeling that a a particular era had finished that one of our heroes was dead um somebody who in a way had um represented experimentation and uh, crazy behavior but uh, people had been getting away with crazy behavior and I think suddenly everyone became much more sort of health and safety conscious and uh it obviously wasn't okay just to take drugs and do your own thing because here was a living example of somebody who'd gone really badly off the rails Mm -hmm. so i think there was that kind of feeling that a particular way of life and a, a particular experiment was coming to an end which was a bit foreboding and no one really quite knew what was going to be happening in the 70s, I think, which was such a different era. Brian's rivalry with Mip, the leadership of the Stones, was growing. A visible friction grew up between them. A rock group is sort of like a primitive tribe. Their whole life blood comes from that bond. Once nobody wants to talk to them, they just go off into the woods and die. Well, it is interesting how the Rolling Stones seem to somehow be sort of at the zeitgeist of change so often, and that is one of them. So you have Brian Jones passing away. Uh, Later that same year, I think Altamont happened, the the big concert in San Francisco where people were killed, and that seemed to be kind of the end of peace and love right there, leading into a much darker time uh, in history. And I think it's fascinating that, you know, a couple of months ago, they released a new album. Hackney Diamonds are still at it. Uh, What is the longevity, do you think, of the Rolling Stones? Well, you know, I kind of see Mick as this unbelievably disciplined, Mm -hmm. directed person, you know, a great survivor who's probably done more than anybody else to hold the whole thing together and has a real vision i think you know he was the one who would always go and look at other acts throughout that period of time and see what music was popular and what you know what the zeitgeist was so i think he you know he's done that consistently and being able to reinvent them constantly um and you know not many people have that ability Mm -hmm. nick thank you so much i really enjoyed the film uh this was a little slice of history that is kind of near and dear to me i loved it and uh loved seeing all the new footage and and a really refreshing take on brian jones thank you so much richard in the early days who got all the fan mail brian the secretary has told me, well, we get about 100 letters, about 60 of them are for Brian, about 25 are for Mick, there's about 10 for Charlie and Keith, and there's about the same for you, you know, and that's it, you know, but Brian gets all the family.
You've been listening to director Nick Broomfield on The Richard Krause Show. His film, The Stones and Brian Jones, is available to rent or buy across Canada on the Apple TV app and other VOD platforms. In this segment, we're going to get to know Douglas Smith, author of The Dream Rider Saga. Douglas is following up the award-winning first two books in the series, The Hollow Boys and The Crystal Key, with a third book to round out the successful trilogy. The new book, which is available wherever fine books are sold, is called The Lost Expedition and continues the story of Will Draycott, the 17-year-old superhero who can walk in our dreams, but because of his agoraphobia, can never walk the streets of his very own city. The book has a 5 out of 5 star rating on Goodreads, and in this interview we'll find out how Douglas came to writing as a second career, how he approached writing a trilogy, and much, much more. Here's Douglas Smith, who joined me via Zoom. Thanks for taking some time to talk with me today. Oh, you're quite welcome. This is, this is a treat for me. Uh, we're a big movie-going family, and... Uh... We're a big fan of your movie reviews. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Congratulations on The Lost Expedition. We will talk about the book in just a minute. Uh, I want to go back a little bit because for you, writing is a second career. And so tell me a little bit about how you started writing and the point at which it became uh, a full-time career. I guess I was early in my early 40s. Um and I, I read the obituary of one of my favorite all-time writers, the American science fiction writer, Roger Zelazny. Mm -hmm. uh, and he had just died. We'd just returned from summer vacation. And I picked up the paper and read about his passing uh, from cancer. And I'd always, I'd written in high school, I'd always said, yeah, one day I'll, I'll you know, pursue the writing career. And that kind of made me realize the one day, you know, you can't depend on having the time. So I started writing right there. And um, the end of, I think, the New Year's Eve, the following year, I sold my first story uh, and basically spent the first decade uh, as working full time. I had a senior IT executive role. I was doing global travel. I was primary caregiver for my parents. So mm. you know, I stuck to short fiction for a long time. And then um, I found my short stories were becoming long stories. <laughs> um, so I, I decided that uh, my brain was telling me to, to uh, move on to, to longer, uh, longer tales. And I started my first novel, published it. And then having done one novel, I said, how hard could a trilogy be? <laughs> so well, yeah. th That's a very good question. And we'll get to that in a second. <laughs> Do you think if you had not sold that first short story, that you would have kept on writing, or was that just a nice bit of encouragement and you would have written anyway? I would have written anyway. And and you know, one thing I tell beginning writers of any age is you better get used to rejection. Um, if if you want to make it, you you have to expect rejections and literally expect you're gonna get more rejections than you will acceptances. I've I tell people um, I could give my my bio in two different ways. I can talk about the awards and the sales, et cetera, on the success side, or I can tell them I have over one thousand rejections. Um, it's two sides of the same coin. You don't you don't get the sales uh, and the awards unless uh, you're sending stories and and books out there. And if you do that, you're going to get rejections. So. You have to love writing. I mean, you have to be mm -hmm. doing it because you just enjoy telling stories. 
for years, I kept every rejection letter that I ever got back when they used to send you an actual rejection letter in the mail. And I I saved all of them because they weren't for me a, a sign of my rejection or of rejection. They were to me a sign of persistence a sign of never giving up. And I kept them in a drawer in my desk. And every now and again, I'd pull open the drawer and there were a lot of them. I don't know if I got a thousand of them, uh, but there were, there were a sizable number of them. And for me, uh, they pushed me forward rather than were any kind of albatross around my neck. Yeah, that's, that's the, the right attitude for sure. And I find as a writer, I found you start to get what we call encouraging rejections. Like, mm-hmm. Back then, yeah, I was sending them out in in snail mail too. That's all the the markets accepted, yeah. um, and you'd start to get the standard rejection letter. Then you'd get the the next level of standard rejection letter, which is we enjoyed your story and we'd like to see more from you. You're listening to author Douglas Smith on the Richard Krauss Show, the third part of his Dream Rider saga, a new book called The Lost Expedition, is available now wherever you buy fine books. And then you get the ones where the editor actually scribbles a note on, a handwritten note on it, and those are like gold. There's, oh, wow, there actually is someone out there who really reads these things (laughs) before they reject them. Now, were your short stories all urban fantasy, which is what you are uh, writing about now? Uh, no, they weren't. They uh, one of the other thing I, I tell beginning writers is I still think short fiction is the best way to start. Hmm. Um, the example I give is you could let's say you write a hundred thousand words. Now that could be a hundred thousand word novel, or you could write twenty five thousand word short stories. You're gonna learn a lot more in those 20 short stories and you're going to be able to try out different Mm -hmm. tools and genres and and first person third person point of view multiple points of view etc so you can you can experiment more and you can really add to your toolbox so um when i when i started writing i started short fiction as i said and i very consciously tried to write something different every time i wrote a short story so my my short stories even at the start they were uh, first few were urban fantasy but then i did hard science fiction soft science fiction horror slipstream uh mainstream literary so yeah i i I write across everything uh the novels so far the first one was urban fantasy uh and these last three are young adult Mm-hmm. although also targeted at an at adult audience as well. I think that the short story format uh, also ten- makes you focus on the story because you don't have, if you're only writing 5,000 words instead of 100,000 words, every of those 5,000 words count. And so it's that famous story where I think it was Moliere, some famous writer, uh, received a present in the mail and wrote a long seven-page letter back to the uh, person that sent it to them. And then the last line was, sorry, I didn't have time to write a shorter letter to you. Because shorter takes more time to think about the uh, the themes you're developing. Develop them properly. You never waste any words. And that is, for me, the best training ground as a writer. Totally agree. 100%. It's another thing I, I recommend to, to writers is, um, yeah, every word, every sentence has to be there for a reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I'd love to find out who actually made that quote, if it's Molly. I, I, I'm not sure who it is. Mark Twain saying, <laughs> I'm reading you a long letter because I don't have time to write a short one. Yeah. But that's it. I mean, um, and after you write your your novel and um, you suddenly have to come up with a, a precy uh, a synopsis for retail sites or for whoever you're sending it to, yeah. you realize how hard that is. Absolutely. Now, the Lost Expedition uh, is the—it's the last novel in this series, right? Is that correct? It's the third book in the trilogy. Yes. Yeah, in the trilogy. So, will the characters live on beyond this? Do you think? Do you have plans for them, or is this it for them? I don't want to give anything away, but <laughs> if, if I decide I do want to return to this world and these characters, and I, I, I tend to love my characters um it it could be i could i could write more books in this world um the one thing i'll mention is the um, it's the trilogy is called the dream writer saga and there's three books there's first one was the hollow boys which won a couple of awards last year and then the crystal key and then this one which is coming out uh on the 15th uh the lost expedition but it's one giant story it's one long single mystery that i that i tell over three books so the problem is um you know people say okay i'll pick up the last expedition i the first thing you read in the book is please don't start here <laughs> go back and, and you know start with book one so um it's that kind of trilogy it's it's one uh, very uh integrated story that uh, you really should read in order did you know when you wrote the first sentence of the first book where it was going to end up was it always planned i guess it was always planned as a trilogy how do you wrap your head around that how do you talk a publisher into that there's lots of questions there yeah so um First of all, the best piece of advice I got was from Charles DeLint. I don't know if you know him, but he's like a world famous Canadian urban fantasy writer. Yep. Uh, he they didn't have a genre called urban fantasy until Charles started writing his urban fantasy stories back in the early 80s. Um, he had written his own young adult urban fantasy trilogy, which is excellent, called The Wildings. And um, he and I had become friends, uh, and I, I was telling him that I was going to be starting this trilogy, and he said, listen, I'll give you the best piece of advice I wish someone had given me. He said, write all three books at once uh, before you try to publish any of them. And he said he would have given an arm and a leg as he was writing book three to be able to go back and change things in books one or two so he could write the ending he really thought the, the story deserved. So I did that. I wrote all three books. Uh, before I published the uh, the first one, The Hollow Boys. Did I know where it was going? Yeah, sort of. Um, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not an outliner. You know, they they say there's two types of writers, pantsers who write by the seat of their pants or outliners. I'm sort of in the middle. Um, I don't do detailed outlines. Um, I'll throw another quote out. This one, I think, was from E.L. Doctorow, and, and he described writing a novel as um it's like driving across the desert at night the headlights right uh, yeah. yeah the headlight so yeah. that's what i call i call it headlights on the highway that's yep. you can only see as much as your headlights illuminate uh and that's the way i write i will write three to four to five chapter chunks uh i i sort of know what my destination is at the other end on the other side of the desert uh i don't know exactly what roads i i know what road i'll start out on mm. i don't know all the twists and turns I know what 
key stopping points along that road need to be. Uh, but that's how I do it. I do it in chunks. And then if I'm happy with that chunk of four or five chapters, I move to the next chunk. As you develop a character like uh, the teenager Will Draycott, who's kind of at the, the center of this trilogy, um, do you, uh, is it more seat of your pants? Do you learn about him as the writing of the book goes on? Uh, Douglas Copeland told me one time that his characters almost stand on his shoulders after a while and whisper what they want to do into his ears. Do you have that kind of experience? Yeah, and if if I'm not at that point where my characters are that real to me, I'm not ready to start writing about mm. them. So I, I tend to have very, very clear images of my characters and their personalities. I don't know everything that's going to happen to them, but in, in most cases, I guess what I need, Richard, is I need to know if they face a situation, how they're going to react to it. Mm -hmm. So you need to know their personalities. You need to know their, their level of, I don't know, bravery or risk-taking or whatever um and intelligence and and that and just how what they value in life uh so i i do need to know my my characters very well before i start writing you're listening to douglas smith on the richard krauss show the third book in his dream writer saga is available now the young adult skewed the lost expedition is available wherever fine books are sold i'm kind of lucky because um if I have the story in mind, um, the, the characters tend to show up to populate it. I mean, Roger is the last thing I think I mentioned him. He, he once talked about um, the worst thing that can happen is you have you put you have an idea for the story. You put out a casting call in your mind and <laughs> the wrong characters show up. <laughs> you, you can't get them out of the head. So. Um, but yeah, I, I knew Will quite well before I started. Um, he had a very unusual background that I knew I was going to be doling out over the first few chapters of the story. And then I knew the other main character. I mean, it, it's YA, so Will mm -hmm. has, you know, he needs a romance. So the other, uh, the other key character is a street kid named Case. And she's been living on the streets with her younger brother for, for five years. And I knew how what she was like what her personality was like and her brother etc and how they managed to survive on the streets etc so those are my core and the other ones that showed up um uh they they kind of grew as as their roles in the story mm -hmm. group I, I had a pretty good idea of what my characters were going to be and tell me a little bit about writing teenagers uh, it, the teenagers have changed since we were teenagers a, a great deal. Uh, tell me a little bit about creating characters who are much younger than, than you are. Yeah, I don't know. I guess, you know, my first response is I actually never grew up. So, um, <laughs> <what was that? laughs> um, I also have a, uh, at the time when I started writing this, I'm trying to think my, my, I have a granddaughter. She is now about to turn 21. Um, at the time when I started this book and these ideas, she would have been 16, 17, I guess. So she was kind of my, my beta reader. Right. Uh, and there were a number of points where mostly in dialogue where, you know, she'd say, uh, grandpa, they don't say that anymore. <laughs> you know, I was also worried and she, um, realize this as well is that you know uh slang taint changes so quickly mm -hmm. so well give me something that you think will stick around i mean you know i said cool as a kid they still say cool so i need something that's going to have that 
that much um, staying power. So she was great. She uh, she steered me in the right direction on a lot of that, and just in general saying, "What do you think of these characters? Are they mm -hmm. are they are they believable? Do they do they speak to you?" After finishing the three books. Uh, and they're coming out, they're successful, they're selling. Uh, are you writing short stories as a palate cleanser or do you jump right into uh, writing a, another trilogy again? You're obviously a writer, yes. <laughs> I, I'm, uh, last couple of weeks over the Christmas break, I've been playing around with a, with a, a short story. Actually, every writer has a journal of story ideas that they've never got around to. So I, I kind of went through that and picked one out of a half dozen that I've uh, never really finished off and I've been playing around with that but then um I want to move on to the next novel which probably will be a sequel to my very first novel back in my um I call it the Heroka universe they're a race of shapeshifters it's urban fantasy again but uh they have an environmental uh animal habitat um theme that runs through them uh so they are the first one was very heavily researched um the one advantage other than a than a vacation in peru that these stories provided was that uh, i didn't have to do a lot of research i mean i'm just making this stuff up well douglas thank you for taking some time to talk with me today Thank you for having me on. This has been great. That was Douglas Smith, author of the Dream Rider Saga trilogy of books. The third book in the series is in stores right now. It's called The Lost Expedition. Big thanks to Douglas for stopping by. Also, a big thanks to Mick Broomfield. Find his new documentary, The Stones and Brian Jones, playing across Canada on the Apple TV app and other VOD platforms. As always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon. 